Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to this panel. Um, let's say our creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's where we're at, right? And then we're even going to add, we might even add conceptually this week, the next phrase, our phrase for next week, if you want to really go a step further, he descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. Should we say it together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. We had our lecture on Monday talking about disorientation. What does it mean in the life of faith to become disoriented, to lose one's footing, to become broken? Maybe we spend our childhood in faith, in church, kind of thinking, you know, God's a big dude in the sky with a nice white beard ready to give everybody a hug and everyone will live forever and mom and dad are heroes and college is going to be so fun and I'll be married when I'm 19 and have five kids and everything will just be perfect and life will be perfect. It'll be like a HGTV show. And then we grow up a little bit and things aren't like that. We realize that people die. We realize that the life of faith goes wrong and becomes even disorienting itself, even apart from just the raw fact of death. Um, and we wondered in the Monday lecture whether or not the life of faith really has the resources to handle this sort of thing. And then we looked at a series of, of books in the Bible, not, not exhaustive of the Bible's resources to handle this kind of thing by any means, but at least books that people have turned to in times of disorientation or even books that biblical authors wrote during times of disorientation, like the book of Lamentations, for example, written in the aftermath, apparently, of the destruction of the temple in 586 BCE. Um, not only does this topic, I think, have to do with just death and sadness, although we're certainly going to talk about death and lament and sadness, I think, here in the panel today, and, and any questions or comments you have on that front are totally welcome. But it's also other emotions, too, that are, I think are perceived as, like, negative emotions. Even things like anger or, or hatred and, and all this kind of stuff. I wanted to start by reading a psalm one we didn't get a chance to read, but when I asked you, I think I asked you to read this psalm for this week. Psalm 137, yeah, did you read that? That little short one? It seems to have a context after Israel has gone into exile, after things have been destroyed. And here's this short psalm that I'll read. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is kind of like a code word for Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in, while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What, you know, what a note there to end on. Happy is the one who kills your children? Like, really? Like, this, this is where Israel is now going with its speech in the face of disorientation, in the face of disaster. I'm so pleased and honored to have this panel here to discuss these hard, hard topics um, with me. 
on the far, far right, we'll start down there. Dr. Caitlin Corning, do you remember Dr. Corning? She's, she's been on the panel before. We welcome Dr. Corning back. She's been a teacher of the year at George Fox University. Her PhD is from the University of Leeds in the UK. Um, she's a specialist in church history and medieval church history. Um, and in particular, um, um, the way that um, the Roman Empire spread in, uh, throughout Europe and in Great Britain and things like that. And so I'm super pleased to have you, Dr. Corning. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Sue O'Donnell, another teacher of the year in the past at George Fox University, has her PhD in, in, chi in psychology, particularly um, child development and child psychology from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Um, Dr. O'Donnell, we're so pleased to have you here with us to talk about this stuff. Um, we tried to delve a little bit into emotion and psychology last time. We'll see where we get with that. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And last but not least, Dr. Brooks Lamp. Dr. Lamp is the um, director of our writing center. He's also involved in the LIBA classes, LIBA 100 and LIBA 100, save your uh, 400, save your applause and booze for later. Okay, on that front. Um, Dr. Lamp um, has written for a variety of, of sources and he's been at George Fox for a couple of years now and I'm so pleased to have you here with us, Dr. Lamp. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I wonder if I could just ask you all, you know, just based on even this opening little bit that I did, reading this psalm, thinking about the life of faith and the emotions we experience, the emotions Israel experienced, just as an open question to anyone who wants to take it. Is it really true in your experience that the life of faith is really about an experience of all of these emotions? I mean, we say God can handle anything. God's with us through the tough stuff, you know. But really, does, does the life of faith really have for you resources to handle, you know, not just joy, praise the Lord, but also anger and sadness and fear and all these other emotions that sometimes people think are negative or, or sh shouldn't have a place in the life of faith? What's your experience with that broadly? I'm gonna go straight in. Go straight in. Let's do it. Let's do it. I lost my husband suddenly a year and a half ago and have um, been in that process of deconstruction and reconstruction um, now for some time. And I have had interesting journeys and interesting uh, experiences w both within the church and, and here at Fox, um, within my local church and here at Fox. And, you know, they say, oh, the stages of grief are a myth. It's actually, they're pretty real. You just don't do them in stages. Mm. But I've done all of the emotions and all of the things, except possibly bargaining. I'm not sure how that <laughs> would work. Yeah. Um, although I'm, prone to saying that lots of really cool things have happened since Sam's death. Um, things I would trade back in a heartbeat. So maybe that's bargaining, I don't know. Mm. But um, the, the bottom line is, is that I had a responsibility in this too. I had to react a certain way in order to allow the life of faith to minister to me. I couldn't just sit in the corner most times and I had to I had to do certain things and I had to get up and I had to actually go to church and I sat in the back row of my church for a year and a half now and I cry every Sunday um, just over whatever um, Nate will pick a song that'll do something <laughs> and yeah. I've found people will sit with me when I cry and they don't necessarily do any of those stupid things you always hear don't say this to people when they're grieving and nobody said those things to me they <laughs> just sit next to me a lot yeah that sounds like a really I mean notwithstanding, a really kind of positive experience with sadness in the life of faith in that people, you're saying people did come alongside you, like it really did have a place in, in your church life. But I had to say yes. Mm. Um, I had to say yes when people would say, 
do you need anything? I had to say, yes, I need someone to help me fix my whatever. I need someone to um, you know, do the things that I needed help with. And if I had chosen to say no, I'd be sitting alone in my house. Mm. And I didn't choose that. But I've also watched God send me um, messages and emails and texts from people who just suddenly, spontaneously felt the need to write me an email and ask how I was doing for no apparent reason except that God knew I needed it right then. Hmm. So. Dr. Corning, Dr. Lamp, what about you? What kind of experiences have you had with this full gamut of emotions in church? Um, I think my experience has been a little bit more bifurcated where I think in church, uh, certainly the church I grew up in, um, I think it was everybody had to put on the happy face, you mm. know, like God is, especially in youth group growing up, that kind of stuff. And that it needed to be uh, much, you know, we're always happy. God never gives you more than you can handle. You know, happy, happy. Yeah, I know that's such a little lie. So, uh, <laughs> but I think that the Bible, though, was where I found more of these these things. I mean, I never mm. remember having my pastor preach on any of the really tough psalms or lamentation mm. or Rachel weeping. Um, and then I think when I got into college um, and we started doing church history, certainly you do have that, the lamentations of the persecuted church, the, the lamentations of Mary and how that plays out. Early hymns that have a lot of just anger and weeping and questioning um, that helped me to see that those types of things are okay. You don't have to play happy Christian all the time for people to convert to Christianity or something. I think that was a lot of the pressure if it looked like. Christianity wasn't solving all the problems. People wouldn't convert, and then people uh. would go to hell because you weren't doing your job right and things. And so I think that was. Um, so as I went to college and on, it, it got more complex. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear that you found some of those themes in Scripture that you didn't find in church. Like you could go there, and the resources were there. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm trying to think about. I'm thinking about Sue and uh, how I've. To this point in my life, I've actually had very few people who are very intimate with me pass away. Mm. Um, but I did witness my first um, church funeral in the tradition I'm in now. So I'm in a very ancient uh, Orthodox Christian church. And for the first time I saw an Orthodox funeral a couple months ago, a priest had passed away. Mm. And what I didn't realize was there was this whole uh, other like um, undercurrent of um, the sort of mini tradition that my parish is doing, which is they, they take the body of the, of the person who's passed away, and they, there's apparently ways that this is not, it's not like forced by law that you have to use a funeral home in Oregon. Uh -huh. So they just take the body and they make their own coffin, they prepare the body it, themselves, uh, the women of the church do this, and then mm. the whole funeral service is, uh, very, it's very much geared towards sort of, um, uh, affirming and sort of, um, um, you know, pulling those emotions out of you of grief and really? mourning. So, how, how, how do they do that? Um, well, the biggest thing that probably is a bit shocking is, um, you don't expect this, but the, the casket is an open casket and it's just right in the middle of the church. Uh -huh. And so we, we're just standing and doing the entire service with the body in the middle of the church, just like facing the altar. Wow. Um, and then there's a part at the end where everybody goes and has their final, um, you know, goodbye to the, to the person. So uh, you're very much in the proximity of this person. And, um, and so there's a, I don't know, there's just a, there's just a sort of open and, uh, and there's an embrace of the, uh, this is a part of life. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but there's, there's another part to that, which I'm sure we'll get to, too. But um, 
but yeah, so that was that was really interesting to see. It reminds me of a, a short story I love by um, uh, a, a Latino author, where uh, it's just about the funeral service that is traditional Mexican Catholic experience of like this wailing and these like they sort of pull these like really mournful songs out, and it's yeah. sort of like these um, this, uh, this almost purgation of of emotion that ha happens. Uh, and my 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 priest says, you know, in America we are pretty bad at sort of um, like suppressing emotions about death, we, we we kind of we don't like to talk about that, right? Um, so, well, even to think of the contrast, like that, you're saying the surprising moment in the Orthodox tradition, the funeral, where the body was just open coffin, right there in the middle of the congregation, not hidden from anybody, as opposed to the ways that you know, it, and it depends. Different families and traditions do this in different ways, but I can also think of a different extreme where like we become very far from death, where you know maybe a, a, a person is handed over to a funeral home and things are processed in a certain way and you know, we don't have any contact and there's no chance to, to see it in that, in that real way. So that sounds like a very, in terms of the church service itself. I, you know, I, one thing I've asked students about in smaller settings as I've taught throughout the years is just like, how has your church processed sadness? Like, is it just at funerals or are there other ways? Is there a way in the liturgy or the kind of order of the way that your church does things where sadness has a role? Is there a place where anger has a role? Like, have you ever seen anger expressed in church in a way that you felt was righteous and redemptive? That sort of displayed? I mean, it's kind of hard to come by these expressions and maybe some of them are harder than others. The last funeral that I attended was my grandfather's funeral um, a few years ago. And I felt during that funeral that death was almost like denied in a weird way. Like it was almost like the message, I mean, it wasn't put like this, but it was almost like, don't worry everybody, the resurrection is coming. There's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, nothing to be sad about. It's all gonna be okay. Jesus, run out the door. Like it had, it had to me at least, it had a feeling like that. And I thought, wow, like here's a chance for our church to celebrate a life, but also to mourn and to grieve. And that was being denied in a way. I guess if I could flip this question back out to the panel, when the church doesn't do sadness well, when the church doesn't allow grieving, why doesn't the church allow it? Or like, how does that look when the church doesn't allow it? Does that make sense? Like, why does this go wrong when it goes wrong? Dr. Corning, you were saying in your church, you felt it was covered up and you suggested maybe it was just like it wasn't commercially viable. Like we needed butts in the seats and sadness doesn't sell. And so we need a different vibe. Like, I don't know if anyone has anything to say about that. Like when it goes wrong, why does it go wrong? Do you think? No ideas at all. Yeah. Sorry, we're going back and forth. I'll just say, I mean, I do think um, that oftentimes we don't, we don't want to deal with negative, we don't have the capacity to deal with negative emotions in the church sometimes because we are always presented with the, we have the solution. Christianity is a solution. Mm. Um, it's buddy Jesus um, things. Um, and especially anger. Anger, I think, to me, was suppressed more in the church. I think mm. the, the tradition I'm in now, uh, which is a, a more liturgical tradition, has, has room to an extent for that. But... Um, or, and I think also the, the traditions which really work through the Psalms with this idea that it doesn't matter if, if you're not feeling what the Psalm is expressing, someone in the body of Christ is and that kind of stuff. But that wasn't necessarily where I, where I kind of grew up. So if you, you are kind of have this idea that if you have Jesus, it solves all your problems, then yeah, this, this stuff doesn't fit very well. Mm -hmm. um, I think you, you have to kind of side, put it to the side, especially anger. I think anger more than sadness. Mm. I think one of the things that happens is that we are profoundly compassionate people. 
and we deeply love the people that we're in relationship with and to watch them suffer and to feel helpless is so hard mm. and many of the people that have gathered around me in the past year and a half the ones that feel safe to me are the ones that can just swallow that and sit with me and <laughs> this is a stupid story but and it's not the church, so it doesn't answer your question at all, but I think it answers the question <laughs> anyway. Um, I had some people over. Um, I've started cooking, which is funny because I don't cook. Well, I do now, because otherwise I'd starve. But um, <laughs> I started cooking for people because it brings them to my house, and um, and then I get you know a gathering of, of pie people that are happy and laughing, and, and um, I made pie for pie day yesterday. I was very pleased with my <laughs> Oh, the yeah. The crust was terrible. Right. Um, but that doesn't matter because there's people who come over and, and they appreciate, you know, whatever it is I have. So I was I had people over and I just I had a, a moment where I just couldn't and you've all been there. And I ended up sitting on my own kitchen floor with, you know, guests milling around and one of my my former students who kind of knows me pretty well, um, looked at me sitting on the floor crying and said, Do you need anything? And I said, No, I just need to get this out. And she said, okay. And she stepped over me and started making salad. And that was perfect. <laughs> I mean, it seems weird, but it was perfect because what she did was acknowledge. She asked if I needed anything. When I said no, she believed me, but she didn't leave me. And mm. that was one of the most powerful moments of my journey because, and she was the church for me, and that's why I think it does kind of answer the question, mm. is she accepted where I was and didn't leave, and didn't feel the need to fix it. And so often, that's where we get stuck, is we feel helpless, and we love this person so much, and we're filled with compassion, and we want to make it better, and you can't. There is nothing that can make this better. It will never be better. Mm. And that's forever. Mm. So <coughs> I don't know if that helps, but. Yeah, totally. I've, s I've noticed too sometimes like in being around other people more particularly who are grieving, it was like there's almost a kind of aura around the person where there's a fear of like approaching. Like actu actually the last funeral I was actually at, the, the, it, was, it was someone whose wife had passed away and he, at, you know, after the funeral was over, it was just so heavy and he just was in this fellowship hall and it was like almost like no one would talk to him because it was hard. Like, and I was in the same position. Like and I was looking at him and I was just like, I was like frozen you know, and it was like, there was like this barrier and I didn't know what to do. I guess there's a fear of like saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Because we focus a lot on the things. Don't say these stupid things to people who are right. grieving and you worry that something you're going to say is stupid. And I guarantee you it's not. I yeah. mean, it is, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I ended up going up to the husband in this case and I just walked up to him and I was just like, yeah, this is bad. <laughs> I think that's what I said, honestly. I, I actually got that a lot. Yeah. Because yeah, like what? You what probably said that to me too. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like bad. Like that's the word, I guess. I don't know. In your Orthodox tradition, Brooks, in in the liturgy, it's so ancient and it's so liturgical. I mean, maybe we should even explain like what Orthodoxy is. I mean, probably to a lot of students who haven't been to Orthodox services but are familiar with Catholicism, maybe it's like more similar to Catholicism than to maybe some of the churches y'all go to. I don't know, but. Because if you have a liturgical tradition where there are seasons and there are readings, you can actually build into the structure all of the emotions and all of the expression. Do you find that, that there are times, though, when it's tough to really kind of like be yourself in your church environment or have that emotion expressed? Or is it always just like, 
works really well. Um, that's an interesting question. I think the um, it is built into it, and in a way, I, I'm starting. To, I'm always finding new ways in which it is. Um, I grew up with my. I was thinking about your comment about proverbs being a math problem. My dad oh, luxury, loved yeah. proverbs, <laughs> and I grew up on proverbs uh, in yeah. my Protestant upbringing. And now in a liturgical setting, it's all about psalms. It's psalms, psalms, psalms all the time, and um, hmm. and the. The emotions in the Psalms, anger, uh, fear, and grieving, they're all in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just sort of said every week or every seasonal appropriate time. And they go by and you're like, what, what is, how does this stuff fit in? Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to do more Psalms in my daily prayer. And it's like, this is a Psalm about anger. Like, I don't feel angry today. Yeah. So how does this work? Um, so there's, a, there's something about um, that the rhythm and the sort of like um, giving yourself to the... Um, the cycling of those emotions that like you, you eat the full meal of emotions every, every day, every week, every year. Uh, and that somehow actually is therapeutic. It's healing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking I was just teaching, uh, the Arabian nights, thousand and one nights, uh, the, the, uh, oral and, uh, uh, history of, um, this, uh, this Islamic tradition of, of stories. And the premise there is that this, this woman, uh, is going to be killed by this King who has been, you know, uh, um, Let's see. You guys may may know this story. The king is betrayed by his wife, and so he's like, "I'm not going to ever open myself up to this possibility. I'm just going to marry a woman and kill her every night after one night in <laughs> bed." And so then, finally, the last woman in the city is like, "Well, I'll, I can handle this." And like an Esther kind of thing, she tells him stories for a thousand nights, and by the end of this process, he's changed. <laughs> and she's just telling him stories like. Here's another story of a woman who betrayed a guy, or here's another story <laughs> of uh, a guy who had bad luck like Job, mm-hmm. or here's a story where a woman was betrayed or something like that. And it's just uh, somehow the process of hearing all these other people go through these things changed, changes the king over time very, very slowly. So mm-hmm. um, sorry, I don't want to do a mini lecture, but, um, but, but I think that's part of the answer to the question is uh, it's actually really... Um, whole and and um, healthy I've I found to um, to sort of get outside of yourself in that way mm-hmm. because you're 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 seeing okay this is the human this is the whole human thing and I'm I'm part of this story you know? right yeah like the story's bigger than just how you're feeling in a moment can I yeah. grab this and we've got a question from the group here yeah uh, one student said if we have differing views of suffering Proverbs saying we are punished for our sins and Job saying something along the lines of we don't have God's perspective how do we know which to apply to our lives <laughs> and when yeah that's a good one uh, Proverbs has this very ironclad kind of system you know and it doesn't seem to admit to a lot of differences and in fact it's maybe one of the most popular ways of thinking about suffering in the Bible And it's not just in Proverbs, by the way. It's also in the Torah, you could say. Deuteronomy's really heavy on this. Um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, actually are really heavy on this. You could say this whole story we've been tracking with is actually really heavy on this idea. Namely, you do a bad thing, or in the language of Proverbs, you dig a pit, and you fall into the pit. (laughs) In other words, you dig your own pits. You do your own thing. And this becomes especially acute, I think, in moments of suffering, because if someone's suffering really badly, what's the implication? It's what did you do? Um, And you have this stream in scripture and yet you have this other stream too where it's like, who knows why bad things happen? Um, Panelists, how do you deal with this this fact in scripture that there's this strong line of almost like what could sound like blaming the victim as it were 
versus something that sounds much more nuanced and maybe doesn't give us any foothold on why evil is in the world at all, but just kind of comes alongside of us in it. Does that make sense? Do people suffer because they've done wrong things, do you think? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry, I was jumping in the middle of that. Yeah, go um, for it. I think that this is where it's really important for me to say that we take the scripture as a whole, and we also take the experience of the church, um, a community as a whole, um, and our own communities. And when you look at things like this, um, I think at some level we can say, yeah, some choices lead to other bad things, but at other things, it isn't. It, there's just no... People didn't do anything. We hear it in the news all the time um, or in our own lives that doesn't have anything. And so I think it's the problem when you take a scripture out or you take just one book out of the text um, or, or you're not working in community through these things. So they think it's always way more complex that you have to take all the biblical authors um, as you kind of imagine, I always imagine them as, well, they are people, <laughs> they are people. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the experiences they're going through, what is leading them to, to make these claims, to, to perceive the world in this way? Um, but if we take only that one perception, there's a reason the scripture is not simply just lamentations, and, it's, and the Psalms are all these different things, right. and the four gospels and all that, that we come together. Um, and we need, the, we need the, the community around us to perceive things and help us as well. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? We talked about in, in the lecture on Monday, Israel's response to tragedy really being, I mean, I characterize it just trying to do the lecture thing in terms of lament and also wisdom. I wonder if I could ask you, Sue, I mean, lament, clearly you've talked about lament. Has wisdom played any role at the acquisition of wisdom? You mentioned gifts and things that you've gotten as well, even though you wouldn't you know, trade them, but has wisdom played a role in the grieving process or has it just been lament? I sure hope so. Um, I'm in the middle still, so I'm not sure we can see some of this until we're done. And mm. I don't, I just finished saying, I don't know that I'll ever be done, but it's only been a year and a half. That's, we were married for 25 years, so mm. I, get, I get more time. Um, <laughs> but it's given me I sometimes jokingly refer to it as a new ministry that nobody wants, but we're part of a club that nobody wants to be in, but once you're in, you're in. And I, I don't know that I, for starters, I'm not a church historian, so I'm speaking from a psychology perspective more yeah. than anything else, which yeah. is probably why I'm here. Um, I, I've been given a new understanding of a kind of grieving that you simply cannot understand until you've been there. And that makes, it's, it's almost, have you ever noticed how when something unique happens to you, it's almost like you have a sign on your forehead and it draws other people to you who need that for whatever reason. And I have that sign on my forehead now and people look at me and they go, she understands. And so, you know, I don't know if you know this about your, your colleagues. Um, they come here to Fox with dreams and hopes and sometimes some very, very deep, serious baggage. And I've had the opportunity in the last year and a half to talk to students in a different way than I've ever had the opportunity to talk to them before because of that, that, that thing that leaks out, I guess, no matter what I do. Uh, and so I've gotten a chance to touch some of the grief 
that I never knew even existed um, mm. among people. And uh, is that wisdom? I don't know. Does that qualify? I, I don't know that I have any more wisdom, but I have a whole lot more empathy. And maybe that will be wisdom someday. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as the 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 wisdom of the church, I I'm definitely drawing. I mean, that's where I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's this isn't me. It's not of me. Mm -hmm. It's I don't want to say supernatural, but has there been any particular scripture or thing or or like repeated church tradition or song that you found particularly meaningful and grieving? I'm Quaker. We don't have a lot of traditions. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, maybe they do, and I just don't know about them yet. I, don't, <laughs> I haven't been Quaker very long. Um, my personal experience at church is, is so personal that I don't know if this generalizes. But I think, actually, our church body does really well with lament. And um, there actually, there is one tradition I just thought of. When we're in deep pain as a community, there's a particular candle that we burn. And I know I've heard it explained, but... I also have the mind of a goldfish, it's week nine. <laughs> um, but the candle is a symbol of, um, of that deep need in the community. Mm. And it just helps us to remember and to focus and, and center on those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure how that... No, it's great. I mean, even to have a small thing like a candle, I mean, it's, it's any, everyone could have a candle, but to have but it, to associate it exactly with something. Yeah, and I think what struck me when I listened to the podcast from Monday was that I don't feel like there's any emotion that's not allowed in our church. Hmm. I feel like whatever I'm feeling or experiencing, um, they're going to stand next to me while I, while I deal with it. And I don't know how other people feel there, but maybe it's just because I can't not right now. <laughs> yeah. You want to jump in on this, Brooks? In terms of, wh I mean, what about, what about in terms of this question, if I could just pose this to you, Brooks? I mean, you have scripture, which on the one hand says people suffer because they do bad things. You do a bad thing, you get a bad result. The proverb says, I have never seen the righteous go hungry. Never. That's in scripture. I've never seen the righteous go hungry. What's the implication there? Or um, the, the proverb says, very bluntly, um, the wicked are cut short in this life. So if you die before your time, I mean, what is, what is that speaker thinking? But then you have Job. I mean, we're, we'll, we'll turn to Job here in a moment before we, before we close for certain. We've got a few questions rolling in on text about Job in particular. Like, what the heck is going on in that book? <laughs> exactly. Because, um, but I, before we get to Job maybe more specifically, I, can I just ask you, Brooks, like, as a Christian who values scripture in your tradition, like, how do you hold it all together? Like what view of the Bible do you have to have? Do you have to pick one of those over the other? Do you just like, when it seems to apply, you just go to Proverbs, but then when it doesn't, you just say no? I mean, how does that, what kind of theology of scripture would you have to have to accommodate that kind of diversity in the book? If that makes sense. That's a, that's a hard question. I'm not sure uh, <laughs> I have a great, great answer to that. Um, Give us a bad answer, any answer. Sure. Um, I mean, there there is a uh, there is a sense in which all the emotions and the range of human experiences that we see in Scripture uh, become instructive for us. So this is a bad answer, but like you know, um, there's a way in which uh, we all have you know a, a sort of um, a pride that we need the story of Job to help us. Like, okay, like this is this is the this is the humility and the repentance I need to have as a person to be able to 
inch my way closer to, to Christ. Like, I, I don't know, that, that I, I'm, I'm not, I would need to fill that in more. But there's a way in which all these stories can point back to that, that move that we need to make. We call it a matanya, like we're bowing to the ground. We have to, we have to turn towards Christ. And, um, and all the stories are telling us to do that um, in some way. I mean, if it's, if it's um, to be angry, to be, to, be, to be sad or to realize like this was just an arbitrary thing that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe um, you can make me flesh that out more uh, through more questions, but, <laughs> but that's I, the very general. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of this just to pick up, pick up the thread here where you've left it. Like when you think about Job, for example, like you read this book, it's kind of like a nuclear bomb in the Bible, like of just like heterodox, unorthodox thinking. I mean, it seems to, it, first of all, it seems to make God look bad potentially because why toy with someone's life in this way? I mean, is this the way that anyone wants to think of their own life or the life of their loved ones being kind of held in the balance in a sort of weirdly friendly bet between God and a Satan character? I mean, whether that character is actually the Satan of the Christian tradition or some other character, we had some reading about that this week and you can kind of think about it. But at any rate, I mean, it's still just as bad. They're toying with the dude's life and he's being tortured. His kids are being killed. Yeah, he gets some kids back at the end. But I mean, if you lose 10 kids, if you lose your family and then it's like, oh, here's another one. Are you supposed to be like, okay, (laughs) it's as though that never happened now. Like, and God basically comes and overwhelms him with not answers and not comfort and certainly not, you know, making food while someone sits on the kitchen floor in that touching analogy, but just overwhelms him with power was just saying, who are you? Where were you? Where were you when I made the world? So shut up. And Job says, fine, I will shut up. Job says at the end of the book, I mean, just consider Job's reaction. Job says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, this is like chapter 40, 41, something like that. Job says, you know, in the past, I had just heard about you with my ears, but now I've actually seen you and I definitely repent. (laughs) And you have to think about the tone there, right? You don't get tone in Bible. You have to add it, like when you're reading a script for a play. I mean, is Job saying it like in total obeisance or is he almost like, whoa, like, I guess I repent now that you've said these horrible, you know, like what's the tone there exactly? We don't know. I would suggest this. I don't have answers about how to read Job or what it's doing there. I will say this though. All of us, when we come to the Bible, this is a throwback from the early, like week one of the course, we come with what we might call a theology of scripture a theology of scripture. And what I mean by theology of scripture is just, we come with a kind of like set of expectations for what the book actually is and how it's supposed to speak. A set of like guidelines. And maybe those guidelines are really simple for some of us in our church traditions. Maybe it's really complex. Um, I would suggest this. If you come with a theology of scripture like this, and I suspect many of you have this theology of scripture, frankly, which says the Bible is like, B-I-B-L-E, best instructions before leaving earth. It's like, a, it's like a user's manual to help me know what God wants me to do and how I'm supposed to feel and how I get to heaven. And I'll consult it in these ways technically, and that's great. If that's your theology of scripture, I have a prediction for you, and it's tough, and I mean this to be provocative. You are gonna fall apart and lose faith in life. And you cannot read the Bible like that. Because if you do, scripture is going to fail you at every turn because it doesn't answer the questions you want it to answer in the way you want to ask it every time. It's not going to do that. 
Are there alternatives to this view of just seeing the Bible as like God's handy dandy answer book? And maybe you say, okay, okay, Brian, like, come on, don't be mean. I don't really have that exact view. Okay, but think about it. I mean, what is the view? Is, is, is scripture just like God's promises for a nice day for you? Are the Psalms like things you can just kind of turn to when you're happy so that you can like feel affirmed that you're doing the right things? Is that what scripture really is? We've had a panel in the past that suggested maybe scripture is about provoking us, is about injuring us in a way that provokes us to righteousness, but it's gonna do it through a hard path. I would suggest, just, just put it out there in case you've never considered it, in light of what our panel's saying and in light of our topic for this week and next, that maybe your theology of scripture about just like what the Bible is fundamentally needs to grow up a little bit and is going to need to be more mature than seeing the Bible as just a quick little answer book. To seeing the Bible as presenting quite a big set of responses to quite a big set of problems that can't just be consulted simply. Yes, there's a childlike way of approaching it, but there's also an 18 and a 19 and a 25 and a 45 and a 55 and a 95-year-old way of approaching it too. And that's going to get more complex. And so having a theology of scripture that has room at least for a book like Job or Ecclesiastes might allow you that spiritual space to just like say, okay, okay, back it up. Like, what is this book supposed to be? A book that just has a single message at all times? Or do I allow this book to actually say different things from different voices to different people at different times? If you allow for difference in your theology of scripture, you might be able to accommodate some of this stuff um, in a way that's, that's better than, the, than the, the Bible is God's answer book for my life in every moment. I don't know. Does it, is this making sense a little bit? So it doesn't solve every problem. You know, if you converted to that second way of seeing the Bible, that doesn't just solve every problem. You're still left with the problems. But you could maybe begin to build a container or begin to build a soul, a mind, that can, can, that can read the Bible into adulthood and maybe even deal with something like, who knows, like the death of a spouse or a close family member or something that's not going to be so simple in your life. As we close here, panel, we just have like a minute or two left. I want to give the students time to write their reaction papers. What if a student is hearing all this and saying, yeah, I, I realize like there's a lot of just like lament and grief out there in the world and I haven't really had a chance to experience it through my life of faith. How could I do that? What, what kind of steps could I take? Would it just be reading? Would it be contacting certain people? How would, I, how would I incorporate these harder things into my life of faith? How would I begin to come to terms with them? Do you have any advice for them on a, on a very practical level of how how that might how that might happen go for it dr corning you know you want to yeah um well i think if i i'm not sure this exactly answers your question but i think that um at its best we balance both the faith and hope and love that we have in christianity with the messiness of being a human um, and the complexity of the community around us that's experiencing lots of different things at the same time, um, because we are the body of Christ. Um, it, is a, it, is a, it is that whole that I think is really important. And so I think whether it's through story in, in novels or history or the people around you, we're all going through crazy stuff. Um, and that anger and sadness and I sometimes call it toddler time with God when I'm having a little temper tantrum. I mean, that was something I grew up that that was not, it wasn't really acceptable in my family and it wasn't acceptable in my church. Um, and so now to just realize that is okay. All that is all right. Um, and it doesn't always have to seem like it's making sense. That's not very comforting 
Um, but no, it's always seemed really crazy for a lot, most people. <laughs> yeah. Even just acknowledging that these resources are here. I mean, even if we've just shown you this week through some of the readings and some of this conversation that scripture has a big net to catch you when you're in this place. It's not gonna solve every problem for sure. But there's material here to experience like the weirdest contradictions of faith. Job is never going away. All the problems, you know, Job is always gonna be there. For when life is meaningless, Ecclesiastes, you cannot rip it out of the Bible. You can tear it out of your Bible, but you can't tear it out of everybody's Bible. Like it's gonna be there. And two, Proverbs is going to be there as well. Yeah. To take us out. W- think, one minute here. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting that all the all those um, different books that you've put into this week because it I think that now I'm I'm looking back at those books, I'm like, those are human beings having human human emotions. And when I was younger I I saw those as part of this sort of divine revelation of God. So like what is God trying to tell me? Uh, is like God speaking? And this is and and I think uh, I think part of the answer is look at how the Bible gives us human beings in all these different emotions. So I, I, I think that was, um, I don't know. Yeah. Real quickly. I, quickly, I will yes. be really quick. I've been a Christian since I was 18. I was not raised in the church, but I'm really old now, so I've been a Christian for a very long time. And the scripture has always been the scripture, and it has always been there in its way until a year and a half ago. And now it's the body of Christ. Hmm. And the scripture is being lived out in all of its complexity now that I, I am in this different place and need it in this different way. Hmm. So that's the answer to your question to me. Yeah. Can I, can, it's our time. Let's, let's thank our panelists together. Thank you. Yeah.